You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker, Jeff Hubing. For part one of this sermon and other LifePoint Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. Thanks, guys. Thanks again, Drew. And um, boy, I went over to Drew and Tanya's for lunch, and Tanya killed it with some amazing pork uh, fajitas or something. I, I was just out of this world. So if I fall asleep while I'm preaching, that's why. Just kidding. I'm good. We're back in Galatians tonight. Uh, I want to build on what I shared this morning and give a couple of, I think, real practical exhortations to where we're going from here. So in the first service this morning, we talked about Paul's exhortation from chapter 4, verse 12, become as I am, where he was putting himself out there as a model, as an example for what life should look like. As an apostle, it was his role, and it was his assignment from God to be able to give a practical expression to what a person looks like when they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. So we saw him making that point in Galatians 4.19, where he said that he was, in, he was laboring again with them, like in birth pain, until Christ should be formed in them. And that's a parallel to the phrase in, in Galatians 2, where Christ is saying, it's, Paul is saying, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the real issue here has to do with how do we interpret that in everyday life? How do we see ourselves as people in whom Christ is living or in whom Christ is being formed? Um, and I think it's helpful to start with that conversation in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. So I know we started in 4.12, but I want to back up slightly tonight to kind of lay a foundation for a couple of key exhortations. So what Paul argues in Galatians 4 is that the arrival of Jesus was at the right time. He says it was the fullness of time, which is something that Jesus himself said. If you read Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, around verse 14 or 15, Jesus says that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom is near and people ought to repent and believe the gospel. So there's something to do with the hour. And because of the time, the son was sent. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. Which is another way of saying he was Jewish. Fair enough. His goal, first, was to redeem those under the law. Which, again, is just what Jesus said. He'd come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The first step in saving the, the world was redeeming Israel. God's own people who had a mission. You remember way back, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you're off, through your offspring, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So you had this nation that was raised up in order to be a vehicle to bless the world. Well, they didn't really fare too well in their assignment. But listen now, it didn't change God's agenda. I want you to hear that. Israel failed, but God did not abandon Israel and pick some other nation. He kept his covenant to that people, even when they broke the covenant. 
So that's why Paul says he came to redeem those under the law. He came, it says here, that we might receive, and then he uses a real interesting phrase, adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. Today, when you, you talk to somebody about adoption, most of the time we're, they're thinking about adopting a little child, maybe an infant or a toddler or some, sometimes even older and when they're little and then bringing them into your family and taking care of them, et cetera, because nobody wants them or because they're orphans or something like that. But that's really not how adoption worked in the ancient world. Paul's a metaphor of adoption here is different. It's not oriented toward little kids being brought up in your household. Here's how Roman adoption worked. If you were a, a wealthy landowner, but you didn't have any sons, you needed somebody that you were going to pass on your property to. You're going to pass on your legacy to. Pass on your heritage to. So what happened many times is that these wealthy guys would identify another man, a grown man. Someone who has uh, distinguished himself because of his career or his vocation. Or maybe he was you know, really well known as a, as, a, as a general or a soldier. And this man of wealth and means would adopt this other man, and basically it was saying, I'm picking you so that when I die, all my inheritance is going to go to you. So think about this. Paul uses the phrase adoption as sons in order to tell the Galatians what they've gotten themselves into when they believe the gospel. It's not just that they have been welcomed into God's family, but they have been identified as people who will receive an inheritance. Which is what he goes on to say there in verse 7. Right, You're no longer a slave, but, a, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. Meaning you have a right to something in God as sons. Now when he uses the word son, we include women in this in our, in our, in our thinking. He doesn't say son because women are excluded. He says son because of Roman law. It was the guys that inherited stuff. So that's his lens. But the metaphor is for the people of God and saying, look, you've been welcomed into the family, but not just as infants, not just as slaves in the household. You're sons and you're qualified to inherit the promises that God gave. Now you read about those at the end of chapter 3. Promises of being right. Promises of being one in Christ. Promises that we're no longer thinking in terms of Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave free. You are one. It's part of the inheritance. And a central part of the inheritance is also mentioned there in verse 6. That because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba. I don't know if there's a more incredible statement that we could think of. That, you know, the word Abba, this Aramaic phrase, that the, it's one of the first words little babies learn. You know, like today, we teach the first thing we want our kid to say, mommy or daddy or mama, dada, and the parents are in a competition <laughs> over it to see who gets the, the first word. Is it, it going to be mama or is it going to be dada? And so, you know, it's kind of like this source of pride. You know, you want, the, you want it to be dad, of course. Now, my first word was bird, so I don't know how that happened. There was not even, it's not even on the radar of what you want your first word to be. But 
so thinking about this, God does something inside of us. He deposits what Paul calls the spirit of his son inside. And it's by that spirit that we can give voice to the reality that's taking place. The transformation that's taking place, it, it, it erupts out of our mouths. Abba, Father. There was a few times when Jesus said that. The, the most notable was in the garden, right? Before his crucifixion. And he's crying out to his father using these very words. These are words from Jesus. They're preserved in the earliest churches as a, as a reminder. Like this is how he related to God. Guess what? This is how you and I get to relate to God. It's not fundamentally different. It's by the Spirit. That very same Spirit that, that rested on Jesus when he went into the water with John, like came, descended in the physical form like a dove, and remained on him. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. But think about this then. We have been transformed, Paul says. We've been brought into a family. We've been identified as children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We have a right to an inheritance that looks like the reception of God's spirit. Which you remember chapter 3, that was interpreted by Paul as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That they might receive the blessing of Abraham, which was the reception of the spirit through faith. So this is our inheritance. So what is sonship all about? I mean, that's a popular word these days. We have to know our identity as sons. We have to know our identity as daughters. Well, if you follow Paul's logic, being a son or daughter involves three things. Number one, an internal transformation. Where you're coming from death to life, and something on the inside of you all of a sudden is not as it was. There's a death and then a resurrection. There's a there's a dying and then a rising. There's a, I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's an internal transformation. That's one of the markers of our sonship, and it's evidenced by God's empowering presence taking up residence within us. That's the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. So think about this, guys. The, the creator of the world who holds the, the nations in the palm of his hand, he's inside you. Any physics majors in the room? It doesn't work. You know, I mean, it's completely impossible. And yet, that is the reality of the situation. The creator of the cosmos said, I want a home for myself. And it looks like your body, bro. I'm coming up in there. Ma'am. Now, you, you tell me. Should there be a difference? If the God of the universe all of a sudden takes up residence inside your gut, there should be a change. I think Martin Luther was asked one time, you know, how, is it possible to know if you've been saved? Like, how, how do you really know? And he said, imagine yourself locked in a dark cave for three years. And then all of a sudden the, the cave is opened wide and you're thrown out in the middle of the noonday sun. Would you know a difference? Like his point was... Of course there's a difference. If the God of the universe comes and starts living in you, there's going to be a change. One of, the, one of the disservices we do to people is that we try to talk them into thinking they're born again. I'm not playing. People will come to respond to an altar call or they'll do something like that, and, and you'll lead them in a prayer, 
And you say, well, how do you feel? And they'll say, well, I don't know. I, you know, I don't really feel much different. And we'll start to say, but you are. You know, you prayed, so you're different. I, mean, I don't feel different. I feel like I'm still struggling with the same. No, 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 you're different. And, like, and we'll try to talk them into accepting some idea that they're changed. Listen, I don't know. Maybe they're not different, guys. Maybe we ought to step back and ask ourselves, wow, what's blocking the reception of divine life? Has there really been repentance? Has there really been a confession and an owning of sin? Has there really been an opening the door wide to the presence and love of God? Because I can't imagine. I mean, just in the natural. I mean, we use the word covenant a lot. Do you think a bride is happy when she gets married? Do you think she notices a change? (laughs) I mean, here we are. We're saying we're entering into union with God. And if there's no difference... Maybe we ought to step back. Maybe we ought to ask a couple questions. Maybe we ought to pray. Maybe we ought to wait on God. I didn't grow up in the 60s and 70s, but they used to have these tarrying meetings. They, they used to, I mean, this was some of the things, and in the, earlier in the 18, 1900s, this was started by a guy named Charles Finney, who would call people who were anxious about their salvation to come and sit in a special group of seats. We're not going to do this, don't worry. But he would say they were called anxious seats because there were people who weren't sure. Like if they really knew God, if they really were right with God, and he would tell them to come and sit there and to tarry and to pray until they broke through and they really knew that God had come inside. Guys, I think we would do a service to people if we were just honest about it. and not. Try. If you have to like convince somebody they're born again, I, I don't know. You know, it's like have you, the guy thrown out into the middle of the new day sun knows he's not in a dark cave anymore. And if the God of the cosmos wants to come and possess our bodies, there's going to be a change. So there's an internal transformation. That was a tangent. You recognize that, right? It's a little bit off. The, okay. Internal transformation. Second, there's a right to inherit. That's what sonship means. It means you have access. Not only to the presence of the Father, but now the indwelling power of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. You have access. And number three, and this is where I want to focus the rest of my time, which is now 12 minutes. You have freedom. Freedom to make decisions that honor God. Freedom is such a precious thing. But I think we, we mostly misunderstand it. Because if we think of what people mean by freedom today, like you just ask anybody on the street, go over to the campus and do a survey, how would you define freedom? I'm guessing you would get responses like being able to do what you want, or being able to make my own choices, or being able to do what I, what I want and not what somebody else wants. I think that definition fails. By Paul's standards, because freedom is not the capacity to do what you want. It's the capacity to do what you know is right. There's a difference. Um, and I'm summarizing, but if you read Romans 6 through 8, and then you read carefully Galatians 5, freedom is not doing whatever you want. Any idiot can do whatever he wants, I promise. Freedom is having the capacity to choose what God would choose if he were in your situation. Romans 6, Paul says, y'all are slaves to sin. Romans 7, in your mind you know what's right, but you find yourself unable to do it. That's called slavery. 
That's called bondage. But thanks be to God, he says, now we are no longer slaves to sin. He says we're slaves to righteousness. Still slaves, guys. We're still serving something. The question is what? See, before Jesus, we didn't have a choice. We had to cave in when sin came calling. We had to. We, we couldn't resist. We couldn't overpower it. But in Christ, freedom means now we have the capacity to choose to do the will of God from the heart. That's freedom. Freedom is the ability to make choices that conform to Christ. Remember we were talking about that? So Christ is fully formed in you. How do you know if he's formed in you? Are you free to choose the will of God in every circumstance? That's, that's Christian maturity. That's being like Jesus, who chose his Father's will in every circumstance. Remember John 5. I only, see, I only do what I see my Father doing. It's nobody else's standard. Uh, in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. That's a free man right there. You might say, well, he's, he's doing what somebody else wants. He's doing what the God of the universe wants. And that makes him wise. I really think we have an inflated sense of our capacity to run our lives. You ever think about this? Like, who are you to run your life? You know, I mean, we have the option. I mean, it's, like, it's kind of like you go to, um, you got something wrong with your computer. You can call me. Or you can call Bill Gates. Who are you going to call? Now, you may not know anything about me, but I don't know anything about computers. Just between you and me. So your computer is wrecked, and you're like, well, who should I call? Should I call Jeff, or should I call Bill Gates, like the creator of the computer? Guys, if you have any brain in your head, you're going to call Gates. You've got to call me. I am not qualified to solve that problem. Well, why is it that we think that when it boils down to running our lives, somehow we know better than God? It's just kind of crazy. He spoke the cosmos into existence. And you think you know better. <laughs> like, you ever think about that? Like some of the shots you're calling out there? Like, like I'm going to call my shot. Okay. Good luck with that, man. You know, there's somebody else you might want to consult. He's been around for a while. Freedom is a consequence of the gospel. When people are born again into a living hope, when the living God of the cosmos comes to dwell within, the power of sin and flesh and world is overruled, this is Galatians 5, by the power of the Spirit. And even though there might be a conflict, what you find is that you are equipped with everything necessary to put down the flesh, to put down the sin and all that, and to choose God's strategy for your life. It means that we are graciously liberated from these powers. Paul mentions them um, a couple times in the letter. The, the elemental powers. Before, you used to be enslaved to these things. Don't crawl back under them now that you're free. Because you've been liberated. You've been set free. So freedom becomes for you a destiny and a calling. Okay? Chapter 5, verse 1. You have to stand firm in your freedom because that's why you were liberated. 
for freedom, you were set free. That sounds redundant, but it's not. What he's saying is there had to be something that broke the chains off of you. And once the chains are broke, now freedom is the operative condition in which you exist. It's, It's not something that you should experience and taste every once in a while. It should be the environment in which we live, freedom. The consistent and deliberate choosing of God's will by the power that he supplies. You say, well, that hasn't been my experience. Okay, I can appreciate that. Now we're getting somewhere. At least you're honest about it. It's, it's not helpful to pretend. But my exhortation to you tonight is, is, tonight is straight from this letter, verse 13. You were called for freedom. Do not settle for something less than that then. It's, it's a real issue that if we've been defeated before, we suddenly start to accept a standard lower than the one that the gospel teaches us that is appropriate to our identity. For freedom, you were liberated. You were not liberated to crawl back under bondage. Like you're in a prison for 10 years, and all of a sudden someone comes in and unlocks the cuffs, opens the, open the cell door, and you, you're led out. And there you are, you're free. But here's what some of us do. We go back into the cell because it's the place we know. It's where we've learned to dwell. But it's not our destiny. Freedom takes some getting used to. But man, once we start to live in that place, we recognize the joy and life and satisfaction there is in being able consistently to do the will of God from the heart. It's awesome. It's what we're made for. So freedom then, as I mentioned, it's not just doing whatever you want. It's doing the will of God. There are two practical ways that Paul helps them to recognize what freedom looks like in Galatians 5. The first one comes up in verse 13. It looks like this. Use your freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love... Serve one another. Serve one another. Loving service is a practical expression of true freedom. The most, the people that experience the greatest freedom in the world are the people who can serve others with the greatest passion, with the greatest consistency, and the greatest joy. (laughs) Because if you know you're free and you know it's not dependent on anybody's opinion of you, then you can serve anybody. It's really true. Jesus was the prime example of this. Remember him teaching something like this? Mark 10 and other places. Like, if you want to be great, you have to become the servant of all, right? The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. And then he said something crazy. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The only human being in history that had a right to be served laid it down and said, I'm happy to serve you. I'm happy to surrender my life for you. So, like, think about that. He knew who he was. He knew that he was going to return to his father. He knew he had a destiny and a calling and a stamp on his life. He knew he had a throne that was waiting for him. He knew all of that. So when it came down to getting on his hands and knees and taking a towel and washing the feet of the guys who called him rabbi, 
Why, how could he do that? He was completely secure. Completely secure in his own identity and calling. He, he wasn't shaken. He didn't care how people perceived him like that. He wasn't insecure. He wasn't self-centered. He was free. Guys, when you taste real freedom, you can serve anybody and it'll be a delight. You can serve anybody and you'll have joy. You'll be so at, at rest. You, the contentment will, will be off the charts because you'll know you're not doing it because somebody else is manipulating you into it or you're not doing it to get noticed or you're not doing it so that you, you know, get somebody's attention. You're doing it because you can. Because you can choose to serve other people in a loving way and see God's life popping up in them. There's no experience like that. It's genuine. So service is a mark of freedom. And through love, it becomes the medium by which we share our lives with one another. Um, this, this is really, I'm going through this really quick. I'm hoping you'll be able to keep chewing on this, right, as you continue. But think about your city. Think about your campus. If there was a group of people that looked like that, so free that their, their service to one another was given with joy and with great intensity of heart, and because they could just choose to serve, because they weren't jealous and bitter and there weren't these infightings and, and crazy, ridiculous little controversies all the time. Man, they're just alive in Jesus. They're satisfied because God is their father, and they, they know their place. They know they have a destiny, and it doesn't matter if so-and-so succeeds because they're not the judge. They're not the gauge for who I am. So I'm all right. So my sister gets picked to lead the worship. Wonderful. Get it, girl. I mean, I, you got to go, go out and get it. And my brother gets picked to preach at the conference. Awesome, man. Let him have it, bud. I mean, what? This is not a competition. We're in this together. Freedom learns how to serve people through love. And then last thing, to be free means to walk in the Spirit. Verse 16, he says walk. Verse 25, he says keep in step. They're both like sort of marching metaphors where you realize there is a leader to this thing. And it's not you. How many know if you, have, if you keep in step behind someone, you can't lead? You ever been in a parade, marching band, single file line? I mean, any of those scenarios, you know what it's like to follow somebody else. You can't lead this. Man, this is the biggest point of contention with so many of us. We just do not want to lay down that right. We want to be in control. But controlling your life is the foundational opposite of saying that Jesus is Lord. He can't be king and you're still in charge. It's not possible. The Spirit is the personal presence of God given to be able to lead us. Not just in church meetings, but every day. In camp, in, in class, on campus, at work, in, in family life, in you know, and, you know, whatever you, you wind up at the grocery store, at, at the airport. I mean, it, the reality is we are not, freedom, again, does not mean you control your life. Freedom means 
God controls your life. And God empowers you to please him. So thinking about this, the spirit becomes the way that Jesus dwells among us and within us. In John 14, he said, I'm going back to my father, but I'm sending you another advocate, another source of support and wisdom and authority. He will be in you and he will be among you. It's John 14, verses 16 and 17. Like Jesus, we become people who are anointed with the Spirit to do the will of God. What do you think about that? The same spirit that was on him, that's the one that's in us. And so honestly, if we're going to sit here and ask ourselves, well, can I really you know, live for God? Can I really stop doing these things? Can I really give myself to other people in loving service? I don't know. What are you saying? That God is unable to do this through you? You know, the one who spoke and the cosmos came into existence, he's unable to do this through you? No, we got to call out that lie we got to expose that thing for what it is. It's nonsense. And, and we have to insist on the truth of the gospel applying to us in every aspect. Or we're just having a, a Christian kind of Bible smorgasbord. Where we're picking and choosing the things we like and then leaving the rest of the things. No, no. It's a package deal. The gospel comes for us like as a whole. Some of us think God's here to save our soul. It's really here to save us. Soul, mind, body, everything's going to be redeemed. That's the resurrection of the dead, even your body, bro. So think this through. The, the entirety of who we are belongs to him. And he has made a way for us to represent him in the earth. Through new birth, through the presence of his spirit, which generates freedom. And the capacity to love and serve in such a way that people all around us feel the impact of it. And not just because we're trying to get them to church. In fact, I would suggest that you take the church to them. Because the church is the people, right? Wherever you are, there's church in a way. So you get to be the body of Jesus Christ. Mobilized and empowered by his very presence. So when we talk about how to become as I am, how to, how to see Christ formed in us, how to, how to allow Christ to live and, and we no longer live, it really has to do with these things. It has to do with liberation, walking like true, full-grown adults who are not under the management of guardians, but who are liberated to make choices that bring honor and glory to God. And we have the resources necessary for that. Through the gospel, through the rule of Jesus, and through the presence of God's spirit. Let's stand together. We could get the musicians to come back. I think you guys are going to help us here at the end. Are the kids coming in too? Little rascals. <coughs> Here's what I, th I think we ought to be about here at the end. I truly believe this, that, that in the Lord's heart, like these things are burning for you. You got to understand, what God is doing through the gospel was in his heart before he created the cosmos. 
If you ever read Ephesians 3, verse 11, it talks about God's eternal purpose being fulfilled in the church. That's through you and I. This is the, what this should alert us to is that you might say to yourself, well, I, I want to do God's will. If that's true, then it's 100 billion times more true for God on his end. He wants you to do his will too. And he's longing for this, to see you alive and purposed and free and full of life and courage and joy. When he calls you as sons, when he calls you as daughters, like this is his burden. This is his desire. This is the outcome that you and me, that when he looks at us, that our lives would remind him of someone. That someone is Jesus. And so we have this calling. We have this invitation. We have this open door. And so in the, as we wrap up tonight, I, I would like to open up this space. And I would love for us to just come together here and present ourselves to God for this. So I say, God, here we are. We want, us, we, we want exactly what you say is true about us. We want to see that happen. In my life as a single, in my life as a married couple, in our life as a family, we want this to happen, God. The, the things that you describe, we want to see them actually take place. Not, not just study about them in the Bible, not just listen to some guy yell about them on, on the platform. We, we actually want to see it. And in my heart, in my mind, like this is, what, many times what he's, what he's waiting for is cooperation on our part. He, man, he could knock you down. He could do a solid Damascus on you, bro. He, you, he could just flat out lay you out. But 99% of the time, that's not how it works. 99% of the time, he's looking for, as children, our desire to participate. He wants us to want this. Yeah? Like you know how it is when you tell your kids, hey, uh, go clean your room. And you get that, the, the shoulders slump. The face looks grieved as if, you know, is this something grieved, just terrible. Is that, oh, my God, I got to clean my room. The difference between that and, okay, Dad. I mean, it completely changes your, your attitude. When I tell my son to do something, he goes, all right. I'm like, mm, awesome. So we're built for this. We're born again for this. We're called to be trained up and raised up for this. So really, the, 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 the invitation tonight is, is this what you want? Is this what you want? Is, it, is this the thing for which you feel God is really speaking to you? And positioning you. If so, I believe he's here to meet us. I believe he's here to extend his life and grace. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.